Today's scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. There's a church I stumbled upon uh, this week that's located in Raleigh, North Carolina. The church is called uh, Vintage 21. And uh, several years ago, they did a series on the person and work of Jesus uh, through the Gospels. And in coordination with that series, they, um, they did a little side project where they took a number of old Jesus films from like the 70s and dubbed over them. And there's this one video in particular you can find on YouTube where Jesus is, he's meeting with his disciples and he, he sort of uh, weaves his way into the crowd and he comes up to them and says, he says something like this and he kind of has this uh, almost like an elementary school, no, no offense to elementary school teachers, but sort of this um, sort of condescending, raspy sort of voice and he says, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you what you've all done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try to hide because I'm Jesus and I will find you. And so he goes around the group of his, of his 12 disciples and he says stuff like, Peter, you lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with a hammer. James, you laughed at Andrew when he hit his finger. John, you drank too much wine the other, not, other night. Not way too much, but just enough to make me angry. And this, and this is my favorite one. He, say, he goes up and he says, Thomas, you were slow dancing just a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny video, and I think it accurately portrays, at least for myself, how we often experience and see Jesus. Um, sure, he's a morally straight, religious, put-together teacher, but hardly the kind of person that you would want to hang out with, uh, let alone the kind of person you would want to be at the center of your life. I wonder where you're at with this Jesus this morning. So for the last few weeks, we've been in a teaching series on an eyewitness historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And today we're looking at a remarkable little section of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus calls Matthew, the one who is writing this book, uh, to follow him. It's, it's, it's a fascinating little vignette in the Gospel. Uh, and this morning what I want to do is very simply explore two questions that I think arise out of this passage. First, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And then second, who is this Jesus? So first, what does it mean to follow Jesus? 
In the first place, uh, as you see from the passage, it means that you've been chosen. You've been selected. You have been called to follow Jesus. There's this wonderful scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, beloved classic, The Hobbit, where the protagonist, Bilbo Baggins, has just finished one of his many breakfasts, and he goes outside, outside of his front door to smoke his pipe. And while he's minding his own business, Gandalf, the wandering wizard, appears out of nowhere and calls him on a grand adventure, an adventure that will shape the course of Bilbo's life. It will change the trajectory of Bilbo's life forever. That's how all good adventures begin. That's how all amazing fantasy tales and tales of, uh, of, of heroes and dragons and villains, that's how they all begin. Someone is called. They're chosen for something bigger than themselves, and that's exactly what's happening in Matthew 9. Matthew, as we, as we find out from this passage, is a tax collector. He's stationed at his toll booth. Uh, this toll booth likely would have been uh, near the edge of town. It would have been maybe outside of, of, of the city limits, possibly near the landing stage of the Lake of Galilee, where oftentimes commercial ships would uh, come into port, come into dock, from the other side of the lake, uh, from territory that was beyond the, the rule and the realm of Herod Antipas. So M Matthew, he's essentially a customs official. Um, and his position, because of his position, he would have been hated by the Jews. He would have been hated by his own people for two reasons. Uh, he would have been an outcast religiously, but also politically. Religiously, uh, because... Matthew, because of his position, would have been in association, would have had contact regularly with unclean Gentiles and other sort of moral misfits in the community. Uh, this, we come to find out, is largely who's a part of his social network later on in the passage where it sh shows Matthew throwing a party, and most of the people who are at this party are the people that the Pharisees identify as the outcasts, the misfits, the sinners of the town. But politically, Matthew also would have been despised uh, because due to his role as a tax collector, he was cooperating, he was in alignment, he was collaborating with the Roman occupation, with the empire that was lording over the territory of the Jews who was keeping the Jews both economically and militarily under their thumb. And here's the point to all this. The point is, Matthew was not searching for Jesus. He wasn't praying to Jesus. He wasn't interested in Jesus. He had no concern with Jesus at all. He didn't choose Jesus. Rather, Matthew was called by Jesus. You want to know what it means to follow Jesus? It means that you're called. You're chosen. He breaks into your life unannounced, unexpected, in his own way, at his own time, and enlists you into something bigger than yourself. So following Jesus means being called by him. It also means looking to him. That's implied by the language that Jesus uses to call Matthew. Follow me. Jesus is taking the lead in Matthew's life. 
And if Matthew is going to follow him, he must be looking at where this Jesus is going, looking at what the Savior is doing, aware of his every move. He must be alert. He must be about the business of paying attention to this Jesus. For Matthew, that meant leaving the tax booth entirely. It meant getting up from his job in the middle of the day and leaving it all behind. How do we look to Jesus? Well, we look to Jesus, friends, through this. We don't see Jesus, but we hear his voice. We listen to his words. We read the book that he has given to us. This is where you find Jesus. This is where you look to Jesus. This is where you abide in Jesus. Last night, some of us were um, at, a, at a church event. It was an awesome church event, one of the best church events I've been at. It was a wine tasting. It was absolutely incredible. And um, it, I'm, I'm no wine connoisseur. I know nothing about wine. I maybe learned one thing last night about wine. But what struck me is sitting around a table of of people who enjoy wine, enjoy learning about wine, and finding out that there are all these dimensions, all of these types of wines, all of these flavors and notes that come out of good wine, all of these places in the world where wine comes from, and, and being brought together in, a, in sort of a journey, a collective journey together to experience something that's amazing, that has depth and complexity and brings joy. And as I sat around this table, I'm thinking to myself, this is exactly what it means to look to Jesus. It means progressively over the course of your life, understanding the complexity of Jesus, the depth of Jesus, the joy that Jesus offers you in the gospel. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's um, uh, classic book, Prince Caspian, where uh, Aslan, the lion, who's been absent for most of the story, he appears to one of the central characters, Lucy, the young, young girl Lucy. And this is, Lucy, this is only Lucy's second time in Narnia. And upon seeing Aslan, she, uh, the, the, the author implies that she, um, she experienced Aslan as much greater, and she recognizes this. She speaks to it. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan responds, that is because you are older, little one. And Lucy replies, not because you are? I am not, said Aslan, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Following Jesus means looking to him, means understanding more of him, means your vision of him is getting larger and larger and larger as he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So following Jesus means you've been called and chosen. It means you start looking to Jesus as the source of your life, as the center of your life, as that person in your life who is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And lastly, it means being in the community of people that Jesus is seeking. Being in the community of the people Jesus is seeking. And what is that community? Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, what is your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, Jesus, he chose... And he chooses the company of moral outsiders. He chooses the diseased. He chooses the poor, the sleazy, the notorious. That's who he calls. That's who he's interested in. If you are following Jesus, 
you're going to find yourself regularly around people whose lives are not put together. And that's going to bother you. It's going to bother me. It's going to bother people who, uh, who consider themselves put together and morally upright. It's going to bother us a lot. You see, what really annoyed the Pharisees wasn't just that Jesus was spending time with sinners. You know, I think it would have been one thing if Jesus had said, hey, Pharisees, I, you know what? I don't like being around these people either. I got to do this. These are people I got to love. I don't, I don't like it. They're gross. Uh, but it's something I got to do. But that's not Jesus. That's not this Jesus. It's not just that he was spending time with these people He was liking it. There will be a revolution in your thinking when you realize this. It occurred for me. When I realized that Jesus didn't just love sinners, he liked sinners. He liked being with them. He liked keeping company with those kinds of people. Following Jesus means you're called. It means you're looking to Jesus It means you're keeping company with the kinds of people that he kept company with. Why? Because he chose to seek you. He chose to call you. He chose to pursue you in relentless love. So who is this Jesus? Jesus comes to Matthew unannounced, uninvited, and unexpectedly. He makes this demand, follow me. Very simply, follow me. So who in the world is this? Who is this me that's making this demand of Matthew and making this demand of you and me this morning? Note first that Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Think about that for one second. Who in the world talks like this? Follow me? Is this guy for real? Think about this for a moment. How narcissistic, self-centered, conceited do you have to be to show up to someone's workplace and demand that they leave everything behind, give it all up, and come learn from you? Imagine if someone did that in your workplace this week. You know what? Pretty much every religious teacher throughout the course of history who has ever existed, has come along and they've said something like this. Obey this. Practice this. Believe that. Follow this. But never follow me. That's unique. That's new. Let me put it this way. Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel in in what's called the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew, Jesus says that if you want to be his follower, you must be willing to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye for him. Now that is either the pinnacle of self-centered narcissism or the person making the claim has some kind of authority or right to make that kind of demand of you and me. So who in the world is this Jesus? The answer is actually hinted at in verse 13 where Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. I like uh, another version that says, uh, where Jesus says, for I came not to call the righteous 
but sinners. Now, what Jesus is saying there is fascinating, and he's just giving a little, a little hint. He's giving a little clue. It sounds a little odd. I came to do this. And Jesus talks like this all over the Gospels. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I have, not come, to bring, I have come to bring fire on the earth. I have come not to be served, but to serve. I have come to seek and to save what was lost. Simon Gathercole is a uh, New Testament scholar, uh, teaches at at Cambridge University. And what he argues conclusively is that in all of these statements where Jesus says, I have come to do this, what Jesus meant and what his audience would have understood is that he came from another dimension. He was claiming that he pre-existed his own, his own life, his own, uh, his own coming to them in that moment. That before he was born, he existed. That's what he was claiming. I have come from another dimension. I have come from somewhere else beyond entirely. He was, in fact, claiming that he was divine, that he was a divine being. Now, that presents a little problem for us as modern people, But let me make this argument, let me make this case to you that Jesus was who he said to be, that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. There's only been two, really just two kinds of people, two people in the whole world, um, who who have so impressed their peers and contemporaries that their followers and people around them, people that experienced their life, finally put this question to them, not just who are you, but what are you? That is, what ki- where are you from? What kind of realm uh, of existence, what species are you? What order of being do you belong to? And there's a problem. There's, there's only two people, because those, only those two people in the, in the whole history of the world are Buddha and Jesus Christ. But the problem is here, because Buddha emphatically said that he was not God. He didn't even claim that he was some kind of divine being. But Jesus, on the other hand, at every point, claimed he was God, claimed that he was God in the flesh. So here's the problem. Jesus is at one time a part of a group of people, people like Plato, people like Aristotle, people like Buddha, whose teachings have inspired thousands and thousands of people whose teachings and life have changed the course of history, have influenced entire cultures. Jesus is part of that group of people, undoubtedly. He shaped the course of Western civilization. But on the other hand, there's this other group of people, people who claimed that they were God, and all of history has judged them as a megalomaniac or a narcissist. And their teachings have died, have gone away, have influenced like a small sect of, of individuals or people. Jesus is the only person that bridges both of those two groups. Someone who changed the course of history. Who has been the, the, the head of the largest religion and following in the course of history. And yet at the exact same time claimed he was God. He's part of both of those groups. So what do you do with that? See, for the Pharisees, 
this was their central problem with Jesus. How can you claim to be Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the holy and transcendent one, and yet interact and socialize and party with people like this? See, the Pharisees' the Pharisees' concern here is contamination, is infection. They didn't want to catch whatever these tax collectors and sinners had. That was their major problem with Jesus eating with the kinds of people, parting with the kinds of people that he did associate with. And it was twofold. Their problem was twofold. One, it seemingly gave approval to their lifestyle. And two, ritually in their minds, it would have resulted in Jesus becoming religiously unclean. And here's what they missed. That the God of the Bible has come to deal with that problem, with the problem of our uncleanness. The way the scripture speaks about it elsewhere is our guilt and our shame. Author and speaker Brene Brown talks about guilt and shame this way. She says that guilt is is that sense that I've done something wrong. Shame is that sense that I am wrong. Guilt says I've made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. And Jesus came to deal with people who have done the wrong things and who feel that they are wrong, feel that in some primal way they are a mistake. See, and that pushes against both progressives and conservatives. It pushes against both the right and the left. See, a God who is holy, a God who is holy and transcendent and completely other, would have never come, would have never come down from heaven. He would have never come to interact and socialize and rescue sinners. He would have just demanded that they fix themselves, that they pull themselves up, that they get our act together. See, that's the God of the conservatives, but the God of the liberals says, no, God can just, he can just embrace you, who you are. He'll just, he, he, he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to come find you. He doesn't need to come rescue you. A God of inclusive love would have never come either. See, the God of the right and the God of the left says, I don't need to come. You fix yourself, or I don't need to come. I'll just love you the way you you are and I'll overlook everything that you've done. I'll excuse your sin. But Jesus says, no, I'm the holy God. I'm the transcendent God. I'm the God of justice. I'm the God of truth. I'm the God of purity. But I'm also the God who comes to seek and to save sinners. And Jesus didn't just come to call sinners He didn't just come to choose sinners and invite them into his program. He came to die for them. He didn't just come to choose the messed up and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, but he came to be crucified for them. You may have heard this illustration uh, before, um, but Tony Campolo is a sociologist and he's an author. He was a, a spiritual advisor for uh, Bill Clinton during his presidency. And he tells this story um, where he was, he's from the East Coast, from Philadelphia. And he tells a story about uh, taking a trip to Honolulu. 
And uh, he talks about the, you know, it's sort of, if you're from the East Coast and you arrive in Honolulu, uh, there comes a point in time where you wake up at about two in the morning Honolulu time uh, because, of the, because of the time change. Um, and he said at one, at one point he woke up at about 2.30 in the morning and was, was hungry, was looking to get breakfast. And so as he's making his way through um, sort of the deserted, dark streets of Honolulu, he happened upon sort of one of these classic greasy spoons in, in downtown Honolulu. And it's the kind of place where, as he describes, the chef is wearing this sort of filthy, greasy apron, and, and Tony sits down at, at the bar. There's no booths or tables, but he sits down at the, at the bar, and there's stools to his right and left. And as he's sitting there, he orders a donut and coffee. Uh, a couple minutes into him enjoying his breakfast, a group of prostitutes uh, come in at about 3.30 in the morning. And they sit down. Uh, there's several of them, and they sit down on his right and his left. And as they're chatting, uh, Tony is just sitting there quietly, uh, sort of trying to make himself invisible. And as he's listening to their conversation, he overhears um, one of the prostitutes say, uh, hey, you know what? Um, tomorrow's my birthday. And the other prostitutes start sort of, um, sort of teasing her a little bit. Like, oh, what do you want us to do? Throw you a party? Throw you, a, you know, get you a birthday cake? And she's like, no, no, no. I just, I'm just saying that tomorrow's my birthday. And I, you know, I've, I've, no one's ever really, ever really sh- uh, uh, celebrated my birthday. I've never really ha- had a birthday party. I've never had a birthday cake. And um, Tony's sitting there quietly. And after a couple of minutes, the prostitutes leave. And uh, he, tur- he turns to the chef and he, he asks the chef, uh, do, do those women come in every single night? And he's, those, those women, those prostitutes? Yeah, them. And he says, yes, they come in every single night. And, he's, he's, and then Tony said, what about the one to my right, uh, the, one over, the one over here? He's like, oh, you mean Agnes. Agnes, yeah, she's in here every single night. And Tony says, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be amazing if we threw, tomorrow's her birthday, she's going to be 39, wouldn't it be amazing if we threw her a birthday party? And the chef got all excited, and he's like, absolutely, that would be, that would be incredible. And he called his wife out and said, hey, Jane, we're going to throw Agnes a birthday party. And so Tony says, hey, I'll take care of all the decorations, why don't you guys make the cake, and we'll be all ready tomorrow night. And so the next, the next evening... Uh, Tony comes and he decorates the whole place, makes a big uh, sign that he places right on the front window, says, happy birthday, Agnes. Uh, And right at three in the morning, they sort of spread the word to uh, this sort of group of prostitutes in Honolulu. And so this whole place, this whole greasy spoon is packed with prostitutes at 3 a.m. And Tony and the chef are there. And right as Agnes rolls in, everybody cheers, happy birthday. And they're singing to her happy birthday, and she's just undone. She just can't believe it. And as he recounts the story, uh, they give her a birthday cake, and she just, she just is in awe of this birthday cake. And the chef tells her, hey, you need to cut the cake. You need to, you, we're ready to eat this cake. And she says, she asks, she says, you know what? I've never had a birthday cake. I've never had a birthday cake in my life. I want to go show my mom this birthday cake. And everyone's sort of a little bit, okay, uh, I guess do whatever you need to do. And Tony says, hey, you don't have to do it now. I mean, we're sort of celebrating your birthday. And she says, I just live just a couple doors down. 
I'm just going to go show her the cake and then I'll come back. And she sort of quietly leaves uh, this restaurant and, and the door closes. And there's, as, as Tony says, there's sort of dead silence in the room. And uh, being a pastor, he says, you know, what pastors are prone to say, oh, uh, why don't we pray? <laughs> so he's in this greasy spoon uh, praying at 3 a.m. with all these prostitutes. And he prays that uh, Agnes would know the love of Jesus, that her life would be transformed, that all of the things that she's carrying, all the things that have been done to her, that that might be replaced with something better. And uh, he concludes the prayer, and the chef says, hey, you know, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. You didn't tell me you were a pastor. He's like, who is this? Who is this that you follow? Who is this, uh, this person that you, uh, this is not, a, this, the God that you're praying to is unlike any God I've ever heard of before. And Tony, as he recounts the story, he says sort of in this moment of almost divine inspiration where you say the exact right thing at the right time, He says, I follow a Jesus, I follow a Savior who throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 a.m. I follow a Jesus who throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. Is that your Jesus? That is a Jesus worth following. It It is a Jesus who is worth laying down your life because of how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is. He's the God who's holy and transcendent and yet has come into our time and space to give his life for you. He's the Savior who throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, We pray for grace to know and to trust you more. Father in heaven, you sent your son into the world. He came into our time and space so that we could be invited and called into something bigger than ourselves, a plan to change the world and set everything right that is broken. And your son Jesus came especially to set right our sin and brokenness. He came to call sinners, and Lord, that's what we are. So I pray this morning that we'd grasp the depths of our sinfulness more clearly and the heights of your love more really. In Jesus' name, amen.